Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. My guest today is Brian Gitt. Brian, welcome in. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Excited to be here. All right, let's just jump right into it. Are you Nixon going to China or are you Ben Solo? Wow, deep questions to start. Exactly. <laughs> give, me, give me your story because this is fascinating. I, 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 you're a unicorn. I didn't know this person existed. Yeah, well, my evolution has taken place over over many years. You know, I, I started really all this goes back for me. The genesis was falling in love with the outdoors. Actually, I, I used to lead wilderness trips for teenagers in Alaska, throughout the Southwest, going backpacking, mountaineering, ice climbing, all that kind of stuff. We would go in Alaska for 40 days with a group of teenagers, like 15 and 16 year olds, and be 10 days from a road and just that kind of raw wilderness. And it was I just fell in love with the outdoors. And from that point on, I just wanted to do something to help protect, protect that environment, protect nature. And so that's what drew me in initially to be my interest in energy and green building and kind of that whole background in renewable energy and power. And so I just, like most things I do, I just went 100% head over heels for it all in. I mean, I did crazy things. I like worked at a permaculture farm, milking goats and growing our own food, you know, like the true hippie commune up in Humboldt County, California. A goat's um, a nasty animal, by the yeah. way. It really it underrated the uh, the nastiness of goats. Not not fun to tangle with. Yeah, especially when you're waking up at like five in the morning to milk them and they're really, uh, you know, annoyed with you. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I really went all in on this. I went, uh, I went to work for a general contractor because I really wanted to understand how buildings went together so I could make them more energy efficient and green. So, you know, working in all the building trades from electrical, plumbing, uh, general contracting, all of that. I had a brief diversion in this kind of interesting chapter where I built a company that was designing contained composting systems. So we were composting various types of organic waste, like food waste, yard waste, all that kind of stuff. But we were doing it at the institutional and commercial level or even a municipal level. So we would develop these systems and use earthworms, <laughs> a specific species of worms. I have some horror stories I could I don't want to bore you with, but okay. Um, hey Brian, just real yeah. quick. When I woke up this morning, I looked at my calendar. Oh, I'm recording with Brian. I did not have on the bingo card that within the first 45 seconds of the podcast, we'd be talking goats and earthworms. Yeah, see, but keep you going. Gotta, keep, gotta going. keep it interesting, man. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was a whole saga where basically our, our mission was to process organic waste closest to the source of generation. So we were working with municipal um, entities like at landfills, at food waste processing facilities that make like the frozen dinners, confined animal feeding operations, you know, schools. And I won't bore you with the details, but um, I spent three years working on that project and lots of growing pains from that. Um, and then I was just immersed in this world, this sustainability green world. And that really led me to focus on energy and buildings. And so at that point, I went, I became executive director of this green building trade association in California that represented all of the key stakeholders <laughs> promoting renewable energy, green building, energy efficiency, all of these best practices. And so I, one day I'd be working with Pulte Homes. Uh, on you know production built new homes. The next day I'd be 
talking with a local government, designing green building policy the next day with a lender or real estate agent. And so it, it helped me understand and shape my viewpoint of all these different stakeholders on kind of that bold vision in California. Um, from there, uh, I went and worked and led a consulting company that we grew from like a 15 person little boutique uh, shop to about 50 people. And we really took off during the Obama administration because they were flooding us with cash. <laughs> so we, right. we were one of the pigs <laughs> at the trough. We were eating our way all the way through it, man. It was- uh, <laughs> Cilantro, how quickly we forget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was billions of dollars flooding into energy to put people back to work, shovel ready jobs. And because of my previous role at, at this trade association, I had a lot of relationships with local government and all these stakeholders, utilities, and so we were, we pulled together this proposal and basically won a bunch of money, a big contract. My firm won a $60 million contract to implement, which became Energy Upgrade California, which was a, a statewide green building slash energy efficiency program to upgrade homes and buildings and make them more efficient. Um, so in, from there, I went on to start a software company focused on basically how do you quantify the savings potential of solar energy in homes and energy efficiency improvements like heating, air conditioning, that kind of stuff. All the way in my most recent thing, I worked on wireless power technology. So basically sending electricity through the air using radio waves. So just like on your mobile phone, you can get data. We could send power through the air 30 feet away to power cameras, electronic devices and factories and all these kind of cool applications. So I'll stop there, but that's just a, a quick snapshot of my evolution. So that stuff's fascinating and we could talk that stuff um, all day long, but kind of the question I got is what happened? Because that doesn't sound like your Twitter feed today. No, it, it definitely doesn't. And you know, my evolution happened over, over many years. It wasn't one landmark event, but what happened was, cause I was in the belly of the beast. I was working in California on the most progressive energy programs in the country. And what I saw is that they just don't work. Right. I thought the problem was, well, if we just had enough money, we could scale these things and really make the impact that you know, we we were aspiring to. The reality is they were fundamentally flawed in the design and the, the core principles that we held um, were not true. Right. And, and so, you know, there's two things you can do when you're when you're wrong about something. <laughs> you can just continue to plow forward and, you know, make the same mistakes or you can have some self-reflection and kind of suck up your ego a little bit and say, man, uh, this was just not the right investment of time and energy. And unfortunately, I wasted over 20 years of my life working on the wrong problem. I had the right instincts to work in energy and that this is kind of the foundation of, of all of human flourishing and progress is derived from energy use and consumption, but I was working at it on the wrong angle. And so seeing these programs year after year, fail, 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 you know, not be cost effective. Define to fail. Define fail. Oh, you were you were getting there, but define yeah, I mean, fail. You know, a lot of the the hype around a lot of the solar and energy efficiency programs is that they save money and that they deliver all this value. Well, what we found is no, the reason you have to provide so much subsidy and so much incentive is because they actually don't deliver enough value in most situations. Now, again, in California, if you're putting solar on a large home that has a big load and you have no shade issues, sure, it makes sense, it, it pencils, but still it, it requires tremendous rebates, tax credits, and all of these subsidies uh, to make that happen. 
Same thing with energy efficiency improvements. The average improvement that we were helping to facilitate with low cost financing and rebates and subsidies would cost you know, $15,000, $20,000 to upgrade the heating and air conditioning system in your home and insulation and all these basic improvements. So that would never pencil just from an economic standpoint. There's good reasons to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm pro insulation and pro efficiency, right? I mean, you have better sound acoustics. So you don't hear your neighbors or the street noise. You have better thermal comfort. Um, you have a lot of these benefits, but you're not doing it strictly for economic reasons. You're doing it because you need to replace your air conditioner anyway, and you can take advantage of this $5,000 rebate from the government or the utility that's helping you pay for it. So I, I just saw all the cracks starting to show in how these programs operate and that they were never going to scale and never hit the goals, these very aspirational, ambitious goals that the various regulators and, and politicians had set forth. Wow, that might be Ben Solo. I hate to answer the question for you, but because it does feel like the discussion, and, and I've been an oil and gas guy kind of my whole career, so I understand the economics there. I can walk through, I can look at somebody's numbers and I can say, okay, you didn't count this, you didn't count that. When I look through solar, wind, that's what you always hear is that they're they're cheaper, they're more cost effective, uh, all that. It's just big, bad oil won't allow you to do it. My response has always been, big, bad oil is all about money. If it were cheaper, mm -hmm. they would do it. I mean, um, so how do we kind of break down, can you get into maybe some, exam some examples and example with like some specific numbers to figure out why this is, why this is kind of more, uh well why it's not as efficient as kind of claimed sure yeah i mean it it their core large-scale wind and solar farms are expensive wasteful add-ons to the existing power grid and let's walk through why i'm making this claim and what is the basis for that so the first thing to realize is there these sources of energy have very low power density which means they take up a lot of surface area a lot of land um so to cite these things no one wants a big solar farm or a wind turbine in their backyard, obviously, in the suburb of Houston. Um, so you're going to you're going to cite or off Kenny or off Kenny Bunkport in Maine or off right, Martha's right. Vineyard. Didn't Especially, Kennedy yeah, protest most, that? Yeah. Our most desired coastlines. No one wants to look at this stuff for a whole variety of reasons we can get into. But the, the bottom line is you need to cite them far away from the businesses and homes that use the energy. And because you need a huge area of land, for example, a 200 megawatt wind farm would require about 13 square miles of land. So miles versus a, a natural gas plant is you could fit on a single city block, right? So you're talking about huge differences in the amount of space. A, a solar farm is going to use a tremendous amount more land. For example, um, on the wind side, it's about 360 um acres are uh the amount of area that uses compared to a nuclear power plant in, to generate the same amount of electricity and solar is better than that because wind has basically a, a power density of kind of one versus solar at 10 so solar is basically 10x more energy dense than wind but it still uses a tremendous amount of land and you have to go where the sun and wind is right you can't just put these things anywhere so because of that these large installations have to be sited far from these urban areas. 
Now you have to buy all that land, first of all. Now that that's going to vary depending on the cost of real estate, depending if you're in Maine or Texas or Florida, et cetera, California. Um, but then now you got to get that power back to the urban area. And that, that transmission cost is huge. So let's walk through an example. So in Southern California, there's this area and it's called the Inland Empire. It's just uh, east of Los Angeles area where there's a lot of sun and a lot of wind. And so they built a bunch of uh, solar and wind resources out there. And they built this transmission line called the Tehachapi transmission line. And they thought it was going to cost $1.7 billion. It's a 173 mile line. So 173 miles to send electrons from the wind turbine to the business or to the home. What it actually cost was $3 billion when they finished it. Um, and this is just one transmission line. So when we're talking about this cost and scale of locating these very large facilities, um, we're talking about big dollars. So let's scale that up a little bit more. California has this big, bold plan. They want to be 100% renewable by 2045. Well, to do that, they're counting on building, investing $30 billion in new high voltage transmission capacity. So not all the local distribution, not anything about the solar panels or the wind turbines, just the high voltage transmission, $30 billion. Well, that sounds like a lot, but it's even worse than that because the real cost to the consumer or the rate payer for every dollar that's invested in that transmission asset $3.50 has to be paid over the life of the asset by the, by the business owner, the homeowner, over, over the life of, of that transmission line. So you're talking about $100 billion in costs that someone's going to have to pay for, someone's going to have to eat, and that's going to get forced on to the ratepayer, the consumer. So let me uh, cut you off yeah, and, sure. and walk me again, because I may have just missed it. $30 billion is the cost of those lines. How did you get to $100 billion again? Make sure I understand that. Sure. So there's the the actual initial cost, but then there's the they have to maintain and operate those over the course of the life. So let's say it's 35 years over the life of the asset. Gotcha. Um, so there's additional cost involved. So they actually charge when they calculate the form when they create the formula to how they're going to actually recoup that investment. It's about three dollars and fifty cents for every dollar invested. Gotcha. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. That, no, that makes perfect sense. So. Um, we got a we got a hundred billion dollars into the high speed transmission lines. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's before we've again we've not actually put up a single wind turbine <laughs> or solar <laughs> right. panel yet. That's just on the transmission lines, um, and then all of that takes a lot of land, right? That you know you got to yep. have all these easements, you got to buy land, and all of these things. Well, then you got to pay property tax on all that land. So that you know this isn't utilities aren't charities. This isn't just free. Right. There's cost to buy the land. There's cost there's to own and maintain the land in terms of property taxes. Um, and then after all of that, you have to store. You have to have the ability to store some of this energy, because as we all know, the sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. So what happens in California when it's cloudy out or the wind stops, et cetera? And this happens, obviously, a lot more than depending on the latitude and the climate than you would want. Right. right. So the amount of storage you need in terms of battery storage is just huge. And right now, battery storage is rated about one to four hours. It's mainly just used to extend kind of solar during the day for a couple hours into the early evening. It's not meant to store over the whole night or multiple days if there's bad inclement weather. 
Um, and when you start talking about other areas, here's a great example of this, because the number one leader in the world on solar and wind is Germany, right? They've invested about, they will have invested $550 billion equivalent um, by 2025 in all of this solar and wind infrastructure. So to do that um, and to go 100% renewable, that, that doesn't even get them close to 100%, but that's what they're already allocated and spending. They're going to have, if they were going to overcome all the wind droughts and gloomy days in Germany, they would have to overcome a 61-day deficit of wind and sun. So that just when, you know, the sun's obviously, it's gloomy out, you're not going to get the full amount of radiation hitting the panels, et cetera. And they did this analysis. They went back over 35 years of data. So these aren't projections. This isn't estimates. They looked at hourly interval data over 35 years of history to find that you would need to overcome the 61-day period of kind of scarce wind and sun. So when they calculated the numbers of what that would mean in terms of energy storage, they would need 24 days of energy storage. So not a few hours, not 24 hours, 24 days to basically go to this 100% renewable scenario. That's 36 terawatt hours of energy. That's just an immense, the cost of that is so astronomical. It's a non-starter, right? It's just, you can't do that. So that's just an example of the magnitude of the cost we're talking about when we start talking about storage costs, transmission costs, property tax, land investment, um, all of these things add up. Gotcha. So, and, and I'll take us off the, the, the road real quick and we'll come back, but in the response back to that, oh, but batteries get cheaper every day. Look at Moore's law. Uh, the improvements are so great. You know, technology will solve this uh, in the next decade. Moore's law doesn't apply to battery technology or to solar and wind technology. It's just, it's a category error of thinking to apply that. Most of the costs are, sure, we're always going to incrementally get better and batteries are getting better and solar is incrementally getting better. Um, but it's not Moore's law. It's not doubling every 18 months. You know, you're, you're looking at small incremental gains of a few percentages, percentage points a year of greater efficiency. And most of the cost reductions are now gone. We're actually seeing prices go up because of commodity inflation, because of increasing energy costs. I mean, solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries are made with a lot of energy and a lot of commodities to, you know, to make these things. So there's this fallacy that these costs are going to keep dropping, where actually now you're starting to see them go back up as commodity inflation prevails. And we're likely to see for at least the near future, foreseeable future, we're going to be in a state of commodity inflation. So these costs are not going to continue to drop. They're actually going to go up. I, I, I've often, and, and I was a little bit leading the witness there. I think the reason Moore's law doesn't apply is God came down and said the amount of energy stored in oil in a barrel of oil weighs 300 pounds. The same amount of energy stored in lithium weighs 20,000 pounds. And that's just theoretical limits based on physics, as I like to say, that's what God declared uh, when, the, uh, when the earth was formed. And that's your limiting factor. I mean, it just, it has to be. So, so it, it costs a lot of money. I, let's talk a little bit about this because I don't think people appreciate this and I'll get these numbers wrong. So correct me. 
uh, 70% of all solar is made in China, 60% of wind turbines, I think, are made in, in, in China. At the end of the day, China, two-thirds of their energy is from coal, I believe. So, in effect, creating these renewable, um, the solar and the wind, is really China exporting coal, isn't it? Or am Correct. I looking at that wrong? No, you're, you are looking at it with clear eyes. You know, the reality is right now, obviously what's happening with, with Russia and energy security and national security is becoming a top agenda item for good reason, because you can see how vulnerable countries are. I mean, Russia could not have initiated this attack without this long plan of kind of making Europe and especially Germany and, and these other countries more dependent on their oil and gas resources. Right. And so all we would be doing by going to this 100% renewable fantasy is shifting to China because it's the numbers are actually deceiving and they're much worse than you just stated. So about 80% of the solar panels are made in China. But when you actually start breaking down the, the integral components to make it like the solar ingots and the solar wafers, the very energy intensive uh, process to make polysilicon. Um, it's almost 99% of those core components are made in China because they have very weak environmental regulations and labor regulations. 45% of all the solar grade polysilicon in the world is made with slave labor in Xinjiang province. Um, so they're, they're I, I, people call it forced labor. You can call it what you want. It's, it's slavery when you don't have a choice whether you go to work and what factory you work and how long you work and you know, you're not getting paid a fair wage. Um, and that's basically there's people in about over a million people in detention camps working in these factories that are making the solar grade polysilicon. So 45% of that, but that gets blended with all of the other polysilicon. So you don't even know, there's no real traceability for a solar panel to know, well, is my solar grade polysilicon coming from Xinjiang or is it coming from another part of China or somewhere else? You don't really know because it's blended in. So you have slave labor, that, that helps decrease the cost quite a bit. Um, and then you have basically the Chinese government that has very consciously and strategically uh, subsidized their industry to break the back of Europe and the US manufacturing of, of solar panels. So in Europe, it's almost, I think it's completely gone. I'm not aware of any significant solar manufacturer in Europe anymore. The U United States has dropped off a cliff. We, it's down to a trickle. We have a few. Um, but almost all of the, the major capacity is now coming out of China. And to get around some of these tariffs and kind of um, forced labor issues, et cetera, what China does is has agreements with uh, operations in Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, and Thailand to assemble the panels and ship them out from there to get around tariffs and to get around some of these labor issues. So the core components, the energy intensive components that are made using cheap coal and slave labor in China are then getting assembled in Malaysia and Vietnam and then shipped over to Europe and the United States. So when we talk about energy security, this is incredibly dangerous. I mean, China is our number one strategic adversary in the world. They're much more powerful than, uh, than Russia. And to put our entire energy system in the hands of China, uh, they could overnight decide to flip a switch and stop supplying parts, materials, panels, and all the critical infrastructure that's required would be put us in this terrible position, obviously. So 
Uh, I'm very concerned about that. So you just gave kind of some qualitative commentary around the economics and you alluded to uh, the actual dollars and cents, but let me get you to opine on when you look at solar and wind and you look at the costs, if you're using construction costs from five years ago, coal prices have gone through the roof. So you cannot project that going forward. You alluded to this too, the components, I mean, just the precious metals, et cetera, if we're really going to do this on a big scale, we're going to have to go find more of that stuff. And I don't think that's going to get cheaper over time. So those metals are going to be more expensive. And I do believe that ultimately in the human experience, you have to be better to your people or else you get into trouble. So as much as I agree that the slave labor in China, I do think over time that has to go away either the people revolt or China does better on the human rights front to more integrate them into the rest of, of society. So thinking the cost structure from past is going to be the cost structure going forward. Now, look, I also believe technology improves over time and costs generally go down, but I have a real struggle seeing that happen. Am I right about that? Or you are. I mean, the, the 50 to 70% of the cost of a wind turbine and solar panel is in these commodities and energy embodied cost. Um, so that's, you know, what we're obviously in this inflationary environment with commodities, it's going to get more expensive, not less. So we're, we're already seeing some of the largest wind manufacturers in the world. They're losing money on every wind turbine they sell. They're losing money. They have a negative, negative profit margin. Um, and so they're in real big trouble. The only reason this industry exists is it's propped up by overly generous subsidies and, and tax credits. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't exist. I mean, period. Um, both on the Chinese side, because they've subsidized to lower the cost with not only the slave labor and cheap coal, but also the government just flooding their companies with money to, to drive down the cost. But also then all of the tax incentives and subsidies of the Western governments Europe and the United States is an example. Without that, um, this technology doesn't have legs. It doesn't stand on its own. And if you then add in the to overcome these reliability and resilience issue by really providing durable long-term battery storage, as we talked about earlier, it's just the the physics and economics of this make no sense, right? It, it just it's not a smart way to design an energy system, and there's a huge opportunity cost to wasting all this money. You know, over the last decade or so, we've spent globally about $2.7 trillion on solar and wind installations. And all of that money and all of that time, we've moved the needle from 87% fossil fuels that is supplying the world to 84%. So we've, we've basically decreased 3%. We've moved the needle over over 10 years and this massive investment, um, and it's barely a, even a dent, and it's creating all of these additional problems and not even delivering on the result. So that's, it's a huge problem. So Brian, when we look, I see this on Twitter, I see this on LinkedIn, I see various places, you always see the chart, and on the left, you have the high energy costs, and it's always oil, gas, and coal, and then it always has on the right, the low cost of solar and wind. 
And I don't need, I, I don't have the capability of getting in there and figuring out what they're including, what they're not included. But I hear things like, well, the wind and solar guys don't uh, calculate decommissioning costs. That's not included in it. Do you have any color on why we see these charts, given what we've just been talking about? It's really comparing apples and oranges, and it's an unfair comparison to begin it to begin with. So when we're really so people on Twitter are talking about different things, and I don't want to group them all in one. Some people when they talk about they're talking about the cost of the panels, they'll say, Oh, look, the cost of the solar panels has gone down 80% over the last decade. Well, that's true. It has um, for a lot of the reasons we talked about earlier. But that's not necessarily the full cost of energy. And then there's other people on Twitter or other people citing reports, they're talking about the levelized cost of energy, which does include land costs and does include financing costs, et cetera. So you need to parse that, first of all. What Are they talking about the wind turbine in the panel? Or are they talking about the actual cost of energy itself? But the reason why it's apples and oranges is because you're comparing completely different products. Like if I was going to sell you a car and I said, okay, car number one over here, you can drive it six to eight hours a day, but no more. And you can only drive it during this time. So you can drive it from, you know, 9am to let's say, four or 5pm period, you can't drive at night, you can't pick up, you know, go to dinner in it or on, you know, other times. And then the car two, you can drive whenever you want, it's 24 seven, etc. Are those cars valued the same? Of course not. I mean, they're, they're providing different value. And so it's this intermittency issue that is not being truly factored in when you look at those numbers. And the reality is anytime you see a solar and wind farm, it's additional, it's not replacement. Um, the, Germany is the best example of this because they've spent, as I alluded to earlier, more money, you know, this $550 billion investment. Um, they went from 11% solar and wind on the grid to 40%, right, since the year 2000. So they've, they've done more than anyone on the planet on this. But when you look at their fossil fire generation, they still have 90% of the fossil fire generation that they had 20 years ago. So you're not actually, even though they increased this, they spent massive amount of money, increased all this capacity, they're not actually shutting off various natural gas and uh, coal power plants to be replaced by that. So that's the fundamental misconception that most people have is they think this is just, it's and apples are orange, you know, that they're comparing two similar things when they're not, they're completely different. And no matter how much wind and solar you put on the grid, you're still going to have to have consistent, reliable base load power. Um, otherwise, you're going to have outages. And that's what we're starting to see in, in parts in Texas and California, where you're having large amounts of intermittent renewables added, because it's not just that you have all these additional costs, it's actually parasitic. They're like parasites on the grid because they're eroding the economics of running a natural gas power plant or a coal power plant. So instead of running the coal plant or the natural gas plant, let's say at 65% of the time, now you're running it, let's say 30% of the time or 40% of the time. So obviously the, the economics of running that plant degrade, right? They're, all these policies give this preferential treatment to these solar and wind resources and cannibalize the economics of the durable baseload power. So it has this um, unfortunate effect of making our stable resources less cost effective and adding more cost to the grid as it is. So do you see how they're really not apples and apples as a comparison? So have you seen a good resource 
that tries to summarize and put it on an apples to apples basis? Because I don't think I've seen one. Well, the, the one Twitter thread I put out um, that was all about the levelized cost of energy, I, I did a thread on this. And this is even the, the criticism of that thread is, well, you're comparing existing power plants to, to new solar and wind farms, right? But that is the reality most times that we're, we're looking at. Um, we're not looking at kind of building from scratch in a greenfield development. Do we build a new coal plant or do we build a new solar farm? Right. We're talking about either extending the life or upgrading existing infrastructure or augmenting it and adding these additional solar and wind resources. So it's really not even a, a reasonable comparison, because if, if you build that solar farm, you still need to operate a natural gas plant, the pipelines, all the maintenance, all the infrastructure that's needed to operate that natural gas plant still has to be there. So you don't get rid of it. So it's really you can't just do this very clean easy comparison of, well, if I build a new natural gas plant, I build a new solar farm. Because when you build a solar farm, you need both. You need the natural gas plant and the solar farm. You don't, you know, you don't get rid of that. Yeah. So if I were going to oversimplify the apples to apples comparison, and I haven't done it, but I do need to go do that. I think, I think it would be, it would be helpful is solar renewables, don't include decommissioning costs and they don't include battery backup to deal with your reliability issue. I don't know how I would handle this on the oil and gas side, but I do think it's fair. CO2 does have a cost and it's probably not being captured somehow. So there, there probably is something fair to do on that side in terms of at least quantifying it, because that's really what we're talking about, I think, to get it to apples to apples. You mentioned the decommissioning, and this is actually a huge looming problem for the solar industry and wind industry because it's basically in danger of sinking under the, its own waste. Um, so solar panels, most of the estimates that a lot of the, the academic papers and this analysis that has been done are estimated that solar panels last about 30 years. But that's not often the case. I mean, maybe in certain situations and ideal conditions, that's the case. But we see all the time where solar panels get replaced after 10 years, 15 years. Um, and as the economics have changed, any smart consumer would upgrade their panels anyway, well before the end of their useful life. It, it makes sense, like in California, if you bought uh, a solar system on your house in, let's say, 2011, by, you know, right about now, it makes sense to actually upgrade the panels in the system based upon the unit economics of the upgrade. So what's gonna happen when you start prematurely retiring all of these panels that they thought were gonna last for 30 years, but are only lasting 10 years or 15 years are really at the most about 20 years is what we're looking at. But it's somewhere in that range, right? Um, we're not, very few of these systems are really gonna be operational and functioning at high productivity for 30 years. So you have just this massive amount of waste that has to be dealt with. In recycling, people say, well, we're gonna recycle them. Well, recycling is incredibly expensive. These are huge, big, bulky things to dispose of, and they have a lot of toxic hazardous waste in them. So oftentimes, local governments classify solar panels as hazardous waste, which means they have to be handled and, and shipped in a very specific way, and they break easily, so the heavy metals can leach into groundwater and the landfills, all this kind of stuff. And so it's a, it's a huge problem. They're estimating that there'll be 78 million tons of solar panel waste by 2050, which just to kind of 
make that clear. It's about 60 million Honda cars. So imagine a Honda car, like 60 million of those worth of solar panels are going to be thrown away. So these things don't last that long. They, let's just be generous and say about 20 years or so, plus or minus. Um, there's all kinds of other issues that happen for underperformance of these panels. I was talking with a friend of mine who used to work for SunPower, probably the highest quality photovoltaic dealer out there that makes these panels. And they, were, they have huge amount of inverter failures, all kinds of workmanship issues, the modeling on the shading. So a lot of these systems are underperforming, especially on the residential level. Um, and so they're not delivering the CO2 reduction and the savings that is promised anyway, due to a lot of these um, underperforming systems. And the fact that they're not going to last for 30 years, many of these systems are going to be trashed and aren't going to be recycled because it costs like 20, 20 to $30 to recycle one panel um, versus shipping it to a landfill is like one or $2. So what are you going to do unless you're required to? And if you're required to, that's going to be passed on to the homeowner or to the business, right? And that's just going to escalate the cost. And it's going to break the whole economics of doing it in the first place. Because when we do that apples and apples comparison, if I'm taking the solar and wind side of it, it's, yeah, you pay a lot up front for these things, but then they quote unquote run for free, even though they don't run for free. But the operating cost is relatively low. The, the flip side of that is 30 years is one thing. 15 years is totally different. I mean, right. that's that's the amortization. So, you know, a great side story on that, on this issue of solar panels not needing maintenance. So Greenpeace decided to create a solar village in India in 2014. And so they came in there and they subsidized and funded this solar array in this village that didn't have electricity at the time, which is great, right? I mean, solar yeah. is it's a wonderful technology for rural applications where you don't have existing power lines. After three years, the system stopped working and they didn't, they weren't able to maintain it. And today it's like a cow shed. So it's, it's basically not being utilized in the, that village is hooked up now, finally, after these, this since 2014 is hooked up to the electricity, electricity grid and they're using coal power. So that program and that uh, installation lasted just a few years. I mean, these things, it's not like you set it and forget it. There are maintenance issues required, you know, the inverters fail, workmanship issues, the panels need to be cleaned. There's all kinds of things that degrade performance and need to be looked after. So if we think through this, CO2 parts per million have gone from 300 uh, parts per million to call it 425 parts per million today. Let's call that over the last, you know, 125 years. Temperature has risen one and a half degrees in that time. Correlation does not mean causation, but I, my position on this is we ignore that at our own peril. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's proven science that you can pound the table and say we're causing this, but the eyeball test says we probably are. What's the solution to this? And you're in a great position because you've kind of seen it all, if you will. What's our solution? I'm going to make, I did this on a podcast about three weeks ago, the energy policy draft, where the premise was, you're the energy czar of the world. What do you do? So, Brian, you're in <laughs> charge. We all do what you say. What, what's the solution to this? 
So the short, quick answer from a technology standpoint is nuclear and natural gas. You know, natural gas has 50% of the CO2 emissions and 10% of the air pollutants of a coal plant. The world still is dominated by coal. You know, Toby Rice of UQT did this great presentation showing how American-made liquefied natural gas can reduce uh, global emissions by make, helping facilitate this transition. Um, so I think that's going to be absolutely necessary in terms of the, the natural evolution. And then nuclear power is inevitable. You know, it's had its setbacks. There's so much misunderstanding and fear about nuclear, un, totally unfounded. Um, but those are the technologies that are going to get us there. And I believe every, you know, barring the, the edge cases and exceptions, obviously in rural areas and, you know, in a village or something like that, um, where solar can be perfectly appropriate, every solar panel we're putting for an industrial application in these large facilities and every wind turbine is a step backwards to meeting these goals. Um, zooming out though, before we just talk just about CO2 and carbon, I think we've lost the thread a little bit about what are we trying to do? What is our goal? Like the goal is to protect and improve human lives and to protect and improve our environment. That should be the goal. Um, somehow this whole discussion has been centrally focused on this one attribute that leads to that outcome. So I think we have to zoom out. We have to look at, okay, given this is the goal, what are the metrics that we should be looking at? If, we're, if, if we can give, I think most of us would agree that that is a, a valuable goal, right? right. It, you know, overall. So if that's the goal, to, to have a goal, you need to know if you're making it or not. You need to have a metric, right? So I think we need to look at, well, what are the core metrics around human flourishing? These are things like lifespan, economic productivity, health uh, impacts, sanitation, water quality, habitat protection, you know, all of the, we can quantify these things in, in very tangible metrics. Then we have to think about well, what is going to be most effective for us to hit these metrics and do the most good for the least amount of resources. Because the other thing most of us can agree on is it's not like we have an unlimited amount of resources, right? The world has lots of problems. We have tremendous poverty. We have horrible pollution in some places. We have all kinds of disease problems. You, need, you can't just have this endless supply of money. So we have to be thoughtful and practical about how we deploy solutions and how we use these resources. So if that's the case, um, I personally believe that this massive, this multi-trillion dollar investment in solar and wind is taking us away from meeting our CO2 reduction goals, right? Because it's an opportunity cost. I think there's if we could do three things, um, we could solve this problem. One is have people understand how the energy system works, at least at a high level. So there's this great book uh, called How the World Works. It's a new book by Vaclav Smil, who's a very science kind of detailed technical guy, but this book is a much more layperson's book. And he just walks you through how energy works, how agriculture works, how steel, all these things. But we need to educate people about the basic fundamentals of how these systems work. The second is people need to understand opportunity cost, right? Because all of these dollars flooding into solar and wind are dollars not going into nuclear power, not going into new efficient natural gas plants. They're taking us away from the goal of reducing CO2. And then the third is understanding second order effects, right? Because all of these systems that we're installing have massive second order effects that most people aren't even thinking about. Like most people think when they buy a solar panel, they're not supporting slavery. Right? They're not thinking they're buying a solar, when they're supporting a solar farm, that they're cutting down a forest or taking over you know, pristine desert. 
that had you know endangered turtles on it. I mean, there's all of these. The blunt nosed leopard lizard. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a long story. I'll tell you over a beer sometime, but I'll just say this: the reason the blunt nosed leopard lizard is almost extinct is because it is the single dumbest creature God has ever put on this the face of this earth. But it, <laughs> need I digress? So all of this com comes down to one issue, I think, and that is storytelling. That is what we need is more. We have the technologies. These exist. We've had them for years. I mean, they're getting better all the time. But we have a narrative that's circulating and to the general public and has been adopted and is kind of bored into the minds of so many people. The fossil fuels are bad. The nuclear is dangerous. Then, you know, natural gas is you know, leading us in the wrong direction and that solar wind and electric vehicles are the panacea. These are going to get us to the promised land. Um, and the, anything else is, you know, a diversion from some meeting our goals. And we've lost the narrative. I understand. I used to believe that narrative. I, I invested 20 years of my life on that narrative. So I, I understand it. I'm not trying to vilify any person or I don't attack people, but we have to actually reframe the conversation and tell better stories. And my critique of the oil and gas industry would be, you have incredibly smart, talented scientists and geologists and technical engineers, um, and they've had their head down doing amazing work, providing this energy that all of us ben benefit from and helping us flourish, but they've done a terrible job of telling the story about it. And so they've ceded the ground to the competition and the competition is just walloping them, right? <laughs> I mean, go ask your average person on the street today, are fossil fuels good or bad? Most people, I think, maybe with the exception of certain areas in Houston, are going to say, yeah, fossil fuels are bad and they pollute too much and et cetera, et cetera. Because My three kids would say that. And they yeah. had the greatest life on the planet because right. of fossil fuels. They're ignoring all the benefits. It's not looking at the trade-offs. It's not looking at an honest kind of cost-benefit analysis. Because um, if you do, you would see very quickly that fossil fuels have been the, the greatest gift to human flourishing that more than anything, you know, 3 billion people. Fire, with fire and wheel. <laughs> I mean, we're fossil fuels, fire, wheel. That's one, two, three in some way, shape or form, maybe throw in antibiotics. Yeah. And, and so we just have, we have to change that story. You know, people think even like a simple example, I was reading uh, this morning about the, the embodied energy in chicken versus tomatoes. Like all, you have all these vegetarian and vegans saying, oh, save the climate, go vegan, you know, eat vegetarian. But the embodied diesel fuel in a tomato is more than a chicken. So, hmm. you know, <laughs> if you're going to talk about CO2 emissions, um, now obviously um, some cow and red meat, et cetera, has higher emission, but, but they're not always using that kind of nuanced thinking to really weigh these costs and benefits. And so we have to reframe the narrative. We have to tell a better story um, and in not always be on the defensive. You know, here's a couple of examples on the positive side, what the industry has done. I think, you know, in, in 2020, when Innovex Downhole Solutions wanted to make a co-branded jacket uh, to give as Christmas gifts to their staff with North Face, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, um, they basically said no, and it became this whole thing. And the industry got together they put this great campaign with the billboards thanking North Face for the puffer jackets and, you know, so, you know, that all their products are made from oil and gas. And then Chris Wright of Liberty made this fantastic video that went semi-viral and educating people about the essential role of fossil fuels play in sustaining almost everything in your life, from your phone and computer to your lights to, to everything. And we need more of that 
you know, Toby Rice did it just recently with his unleashing LNG to help the transition from coal to natural gas and turning the villain into a hero, right? We need to flip that. He's basically pre presenting US LNG as the hero in the story and helping us achieve these goals more effectively. So we need more storytelling like that, but we can't just always be reactive. We can't wait for North Face or for everyone to basically try to make the industry go extinct or push them over overseas before you come up with a compelling narrative. We have to come up proactively to tell this story in a much more effective way. So my soapbox uh, is exactly what you're talking about. One, I think we've historically been, as you said, run by a bunch of engineers and engineers can't tell stories. No offense to the engineers in the audience. Um, two, an interesting, I think underappreciated dynamic is if you produced oil and gas, you're a price taker, right? The world sets oil prices, the market sets it. You are not Adidas saying, hey, here's why we're better than Nike. So there's never been a culture of sales, marketing, my product's better, I need to make the case, I need to make the narrative, I need to educate it. I've got a barrel, what's the price? 70, great, I'll take it. So I think those are two big issues. I think another big issue that I've come to learn over time, because folks will reach out through Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, and just say, hey, Chuck, can we talk? They're from the other side, if you will. Um, and they'll say, hey, we can't even tell you, tell people that we're talking to you, but we just want to pick your brain. And what I have found is the other side, the environmentalist side, a lot of the reason they act the way they act towards us is not because burning a hydrocarbon is a problem. I have one who's become a pretty good friend. Uh, she says, man, I could not live without my Suburban to cart my six kids around. It's that they don't trust us as actors. And quite frankly, I agree with them. The oil and gas business, uh, we've hid things. We haven't been the best in, in terms of corporate citizens. We've gotten a lot better. But I do think it's that trust element because this comes into my last point on the soapbox and you're sitting there cringing. Why did I bring this up? But the last, uh, the last thing on the soapbox is if you go look at psychological studies of how you change someone's mind, not an open mind, have a discussion, but someone has a held belief. And we are, as you say, at the held belief, hydrocarbons are bad today by the vast population. There are only really three ways you can change somebody's mind. One, you can ask them questions. That's why the Socratic method is actually a good method of teaching very hard to do in a broad-based marketing type campaign, but just asking questions. Two, you can make them laugh. I have a, uh, I have a uh, held belief that young kids today are more liberal than normal young kids because of Jon Stewart. I mean, I watched The Daily Show every night. I thought he was hysterical, <laughs> even though I didn't agree with a lot of his politics, but he would. I'd go, okay, if John actually cares that much about it, I ought to think about it. And then the third thing is, and this is what the environmentalists have done because they don't trust us as actors. Third thing you can do is scare people. And they've definitely used the scare tactics. The world's going to end in 10 years. We're all going to die. That, you know, I, I know I'm somewhat unfairly categorizing 
the message, but that's been the underlying tone. And so I think as we try to sit here and tell these stories, there need, and I've killed a lot of brain cells on this, and I don't have the perfect answer for this, but definitely need to educate just so people understand the trade-offs they're making. But we've also got to do it outside the echo chamber because we sit around in energy and anything that we think of as advocacy is great. We high five each other, but you get out into the real world and it's like, wow, it, it doesn't land a blow. You know, it didn't change anyone's mind. We, you know, what we use humor on is we're making fun of people because uh, their lights went off. Well, that's not changing their hearts and minds. And so I appreciate you saying all the stuff you've done, as well as all your advocacy on on Twitter, because you're right. If we don't recapture the narrative, people dying today because they don't have cheap energy. I don't know why those deaths are somehow less important than 75 years from now, people dying because of climate change. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. I think we need to tap into people's desire to um, have a sense of purpose and meaning, because a lot of the people on the left side of the spectrum and environmentalist mindset, me used to be one of them. So I really understand this. And I have a lot of friends and colleagues that think this way. So I, under, I understand the mindset is that for the most part, obviously there's some um, bad actors out there, but for the most part, um, it's coming from a desire to do good in the world, to make things better. They are wanting a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. And so they're grabbing onto it, especially as religion has kind of waned in the culture and a lot of people don't have a foundational set of values, a lot of people have gravitated, myself included, to environmentalism almost as religious replacement. And the reason why is because people are wanting a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. And so they're deriving that from these beliefs and th through these activities and actions. So when you confront someone with facts um, that goes against their identity, that's a hard thing to do because they're not, they can't just admit I was wrong about that fact they have to potentially evaluate their entire identity <laughs> and how they I've never them. been able to do it. <laughs> so it's very challenging. And I went through this myself because I had a lot of um, a lot of invested, you know, 20 years of my life or more is having these beliefs and seeing myself in a certain way. And it's very painful. And, and you also become, you know, you lose friends, you lose kind of respect from certain people that you used to know. Um, because they view you differently. So it's it's a much bigger problem than just, oh, well, here's the fact, you know, lay it out. I mean, we know this in basic marketing, right? When Nike wants to advertise uh, their apparel gear or tennis racket or whatever, they, they don't bombard you with facts and say, look how many athletes use Nike shirts and how many tennis players use Nike rackets and hats. They tell you a story. They talk about Serena Williams or, um, you know, these famous uh, players that basically came from nothing and, and against all odds and this hero story, right? And they sell it on emotion. That's how they're effectively sell. That's how Apple computers are. You don't buy Apple computer because technically it's the best computer. Oh, I'm sure some, some of your listeners will argue about that. You buy Apple because you're, you're, you're buying into the brand. It's an emotional buy. You're Steve buying Jobs was cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's just cut to the chase. Yeah. But it, it's an emotional decision. It's about an identity. I'm the kind of person that owns, has an iPhone or has a Mac. And it's more than just a business financial decision uh, to buy that laptop versus this one. So that's what we need to tap into because natural gas, oil, nuclear, there's a great story here because these people, they want to do good in the world. They want to make it better. So 
we can channel that energy and show them how they can have a much more effective outcome and impact by using these technologies properly. And you're right, the industry also has to clean up its act, you know, things of methane emissions, et cetera. It has to be vigilant. It can't take things for granted. But if the industry steps up and implements best practices, I think there's a strong case that can be made to these people that say, hey, we have this common goal. Again, zooming out, what do we want? Improving people's lives, improving the environment. Here's a path to get there most effectively. And here's the data that supports it. But here's the emotional story that helps you make that leap and make that transition. And right now it's all vitriol and it's this hero villain uh, contrast. We need to swap it because in my mind, oil and gas are the heroes of this story, but they're, they're been painted as the villain. So it's time to switch that around. And it can be done through effective storytelling. I like it. So Brian, just so you know, the energy policy draft, natural gas went number one and nuclear went number two in the uh in the draft so uh great minds think alike one funny story from that podcast you know david ramson would by any sure. chance yeah okay. i was on his podcast actually okay so you know drw drw drafted i think second to last he was drafting number six and he drafted coal and he said there's limited resources in the world and i'm going to be the only one that's warm at the end of the day so i'm taking coal and uh, the other uh, the other point he made was, um, if I were running Canada right now, I'd put a coal plant on every block because I want global warming. Because with five degrees increase in temperature, Canada would be bearable. So, <laughs> not necessarily an effective uh, storytelling on the emotion to create meaning, but uh, he did have some real points in terms of what you said. Is just the human condition and the power that energy has uh, to deliver that. So in, in coal, I mean, it, as much as it's often vilified, has a good story as well. I mean, look at India, look at uh, in China. It's it's an amazing story of poverty reduction, right? We've gone from in 1980, we had globally 42% people living in extreme poverty to, you know, in a very short period of time to about 2020, that number is less than 10%. And that was mostly due to coal and other fossil fuels helping to elevate that prosperity and, and solve a lot of these critical issues. I mean, about 10 million people die every year uh, due to energy poverty, right? Of all the various types, whether it's you know breathing in the wood smoke and you know that's a few million people and all the health impacts and water sanitation. When you add it all up, it's about 10 million people a year, right? That's a lot of people every year. And coal actually is helping in that transition. So there's a good, you know, India is like 75% coal. We're not going to get rid of coal tomorrow. I mean, Western developed wealthier countries should transition to cleaner being fuels like nuclear and natural gas, but it's unrealistic and actually immoral, I would say, to be forcing the developing world, like in parts of India and China and other developing countries to move, you know, basically you're subjecting them to energy poverty. Um, and we're seeing this, the World Bank, the European Investment Bank is divesting from thermal fossil fuel fired um, financing for power plants in Africa and other places. And to me, that is completely immoral, right? You are subjecting these people to energy poverty and a much less quality of life and all the health and other implications that come across that so that you can virtue signal and feel good. You know, we can transition, but this is going to take you know, many decades, not not a single decade, and certainly 
you know, it's going to be way beyond 2050 overall, but we have to have a sober, thoughtful, nuanced approach. Otherwise, we're going to cause a terrible amount of suffering on the poorest among us. And we, we can't do that. And I know China is our enemy. It is a fair point for China to say, you got your standard of living off the back of coal. Why don't we get our shot at it? And my Marshall plan of energy has always been, if we really wanted to be serious about this, the United States will drag our younger brother Europe into the conversation just because they don't feel left out needs to sit down with China and India and say, okay, guys, no more coal plants going forward. We will finance natural gas infrastructure for you guys. And, you know, cause it, it is, it, I think it is a fair point for China and India to say that. Yeah. However, though, China will never do that because they would be putting their energy security and their national security in peril. They would be then beholden just like you know, where you're looking in Germany is to Russia right now, China would never, they have massive coal resources. They don't have a lot of natural gas resources and they're not going to put their future and their energy security in the hands of the United States. Yeah. So that's not going to be a viable solution for getting them off coal. The viable solution is as fast as you can ramp their economic prosperity, they're going to start being cleaner using more emission control technologies, controlling their air pollution. We've seen it in every country that's gone through this. Um, and so, to give you an idea of the, the scale of this, in the last 12 months, the amount of additional coal that the world has burnt due to a lot of conflicting converging things with the, the war in Ukraine, the, the supply shocks and spiking of natural gas, et cetera, we've burned 500 million additional tons of coal in the last 12 months. That wipes out 100% of all the wind and solar installed for the last 15 years in the United States from an emissions profile perspective. So what we've just done in one year with just this bump has wiped out all that investment. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're talking about. Like we're not going to be able to, to build wind and solar to get out of this quandary. India and China are the main players in this if you're gonna do anything about uh, CO2 emissions and global warming. And there's no way they're gonna go to natural gas when they have all these coal resources for the reasons we just said. So the best thing we can do is how they can accelerate their economic growth um, because they'll naturally evolve just like we did, just like Europe did, to cleaner burning fuels over time. And anyone that claims, that's why China's not uh, agreeing to these commitments until like 2060 or 2070. You know, these politicians are going to be dead by the time yeah. <laughs> this happens. She's There's like, no how much longer do I have? Give me yeah. five extra years. We'll I agree mean, to that. Yeah. That's my real criticism. All these climate pledges, and in, in, this goes for most politicians, maybe not all, but most. It's just a bunch of crap, right? I mean, they're putting out these 2050 pledges. They're not going to, there's no accountability for this. They're not going to be around, um, much less well before that. So it's great because it sounds great and you get votes and makes people excited. Um, and they're just wanting to keep control and stay in office. And so these climate, you're already seeing right after the COP26 conference, Japan that committed at the conference then is backing out and they're actually their fossil fuel consumption is not gonna plans to go up. So I give zero weight to these climate pledges. And it, honestly, most of the countries don't matter anyway, cause it's really just about these really core growing economies in Asia, specifically China and India that make any difference. Um, the rest of us, are in it's in the noise. It's it's not going to move the needle at all. If we if we stopped 100% of the um, CO2 emissions in the U U.S. and Europe, it is going to be so minor an impact and the temperature that it might not even be measurable. Right? It's it's going to be 
totally inconsequential um, based upon the ramp that's happening. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a peeing and a non-peeing section of the swimming pool. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. when the five-year-olds jump in, we just get it. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, Brian, you were really cool to come on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to chat. Absolutely. Nice to uh, meet you. And, uh, you know, anytime you want to leave California, Texas will have you. Well, I, I'm looking forward to, to visiting soon, hopefully. So I'll let you know when I'm coming in town. Cool. We cover That's, everything you think uh, yeah. you want to cover? Yeah, okay, no, we talked about a lot of stuff. And I, I found myself, I was rambling a little bit, a few sections there. Hopefully I wasn't uh, going on too, too long. I, I caught myself a couple of times like, oh, I should pause here. <laughs> eh, no, it's, no, it's no, it's all good. I've uh, the more and more I've done this, I've kind of figured out the the better content is where the guest is saying the unique stuff they know that nobody else knows. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you and I were sitting here talking about the Dallas Cowboy draft, nobody would really give a shit because I, <laughs> I don't know you, but I don't right. have any unique insight into the Dallas Cowboy draft. That being right. said. You know all the stuff you were talking about you uniquely know that you know and so listeners will find that interesting well i hope so I hope so yeah uh, so one question when have you dropped podcasts because one of the things i've kind of seen over time is if you if you're on a bunch of podcasts and you know a short period a lot of times they get fewer downloads when was mm -hmm. the last time you did one and you know, there's been a little gap, so I don't think that's going to be an issue. I, I did um, DRW, but that was like for your, that would be a crossover audience, but that was well over, a, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago, even. Okay. Um, so that's not going to conflict. I did um, a nuclear podcast that was probably about three to four weeks ago. But again, I think the audience that's is different. Um, so I don't think there's going to be okay. any direct conflict with your audience. And, and, I was saying that more for your benefit to make sure it got heard uh, yeah. that you yeah. got heard as opposed to uh, as opposed to mine. The the last thing I'll uh, I'll tell you, and I didn't work this in just because it didn't fit. But have you heard what Joe Rogan said about nuclear power? Have you heard this whole bit? So uh, his whole shtick is, and you know, because Colin and I have said on the podcast multiple times, if we invented nuclear power yesterday, we would have the solution. Everybody would just be, oh, great, we've solved it. Let's move forward. Uh, Joe Rogan's take on that is, hey, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, the place in Japan, when were all these things built? Early 70s, right? Yeah. He goes, did you ever drive a car from the 70s? They sucked. <laughs> we just couldn't manufacture anything back then. It's not nuclear that's the problem. It's the 70s. We sucked in the 70s. Right. Don't hold that against nuclear. Yeah, and even those, I mean, obviously Chernobyl was, a, all, all those accidents were significant, but Chernobyl being the, the most in the technology they were using, they didn't have any of the containment uh, practices and dome that they have today. And the other ones, I mean, it's often glossed over, like no one died in Three Mile Island. Right. No one, yeah. right? There was one person that died from radiation exposure um, in Fukushima, one, right? right. Yeah, the, most people, there were deaths, but it was about the evacuation from basically the, the earthquake, the, um, the typhoon, et cetera. It, Chernobyl was about 200 people that they're estimating, including the, not just the first responders and the firefighters, but in the, can, the thyroid cancer. But thyroid cancer is not, I mean, it's terrible. You never want anyone to have thyroid cancer, but it's, 
it's a very small percentage of those people are going to have any lasting consequences. So it's it's really unfortunate narrative. Yeah, no, it's uh, so part of a uh, winter storm Yuri that almost shut down the grid in Texas. A nuclear plant went down. That was one of the the dominoes that was falling, and it went down because a sensor broke that monitored the water temperature. And I don't know if this story is true, but I really do hope it's true. They were saying, okay, we can't monitor the water temperature. We need to shut down. That's the regulation. And there was an engineer sitting there with his hand in the tank going, it's pretty freaking cold, guys. I'll tell you when it heats <laughs> up. You know, Why are we shutting down during the, the biggest demand for power we've ever seen? It's right. fine. I'll just sit here. I'll I'll change hands <laughs> periodically and when it warms up, I'll let you know. So yeah, sometimes we just overlook common sense, you know, we really do. Well, nice to meet you and love to yeah. get you to Houston at some point. Come hang out with us. That'd be great. I, I certainly will let you know next time I head that way. <laughs>